Hello, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and joining me, as always, is Anthony Tresca. Hello, as always. Yay. <laughs> this is a podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so, so, so excited and very, very thankful to have you be joining us for our discussion today on 2017's film, Happy Death Day. We try to think about films that we would want to talk about based on whether or not Anthony and I are in agreement at all, but also mm-hmm. where we fall in terms of agreement with, with the rest of the larger world. It's true. And this film is one of those that both of us, I mean, it's no secret, we love horror comedies. Happy Death Day is a horror comedy. Therefore, and we love it. We love it. We do. It's very, very true. And so this one falls into the camp of films that shouldn't work, but really do work for us. Yes, a lot for us. (laughs) A lot for us, indeed. But this film was kind of dismissed. It was. Yeah, it wasn't super well-beloved by either the critics or sort of the general audience response. And so we'll get all into all of that in today's episode. Before we get into the actual discussion of the text, we're going to go in with a little bit of framework. My doctoral dissertation was specifically on the horror genre and American horror and how American horror ends up representing lots of things that really touch in on cultural concerns, cultural fears, things that are sort of in a zeitgeist. For Happy Death Day, I thought it would be useful to bring in the framework of nostalgia because that's something Mm. that Mm -hmm. is just very popular right now in American horror. Oh, yeah. I mean, you see the It film... uh, all about the 80s. It's a very Stranger Thingies thing yes. to do right now. Right, because of course it, the original, isn't set in the 80s. No. Uh, and so, you know, there's very much this idea of, ah, remember those good old days in the 1980s? Mm-hmm. Sure, everyone looked kind of hideous, but it was a good old time. Oh yeah, grand old time. A trip down memory lane. Exactly. And on the surface, of course, you might not think of Happy Death Day as being nostalgic in the same way that, say, Stranger Things is, because it's not set in the 1980s no, or 1980s. No, it's set in 2017 when the film came out. Exactly. But the film is so very aware of all those films that we love, right? So there's the posters in the background where we see They Live and Repo Man and Back to the Future. Mystery Science Theater 3000. And then there's references to Groundhog Day. Janis Joplin. Bill Murray. Exactly. Ghostbusters. So it's a film that that is very aware that nostalgia is something that we keep coming back to. And nostalgia, I think, has a really important role within the horror genre because at its root, nostalgia, if we go to sort of the etymological definition, it's about homesickness. Mm -hmm. It's about this idea that, so it actually, um, Helmut Ilbrook in the 1600s he used it to talk about soldiers and he said there's something wrong with these soldiers who are abroad they they have something that is affecting them physically but it's also more importantly affecting them emotionally and and so he coined this term to describe this sort of like dissatisfaction with life that they had interesting how the definition of nostalgia and its perception 
has changed significantly since its origin because now nostalgia seems to be associated with very positive remembrances of the past and thinking back to how the good old days, how things used to be. Yes, absolutely. And there's a lot of scholarship. Um, Stephanie Kuntz talks about, um, she uses that phrase that, you know, the way things used to be. And she says, well, actually, things never used to be the way that they used to be, right? Like that, you know, if you look at, say, the 1950s sitcoms, right? That's not exactly what was happening. We actually have people coming back from World War II. We have like weird things happening with gender relationships, right? So nostalgia, importantly enough, is not really about longing for the past. It's about longing for a remembered past that may or may not have anything to do with how things actually And occurred. a shared remembrance yes. of the past. It's the what the larger culture thought about that and was seeing and yes. it was being presented to them. Yes. And comedy plays with this, right, all the time. Um, so does the horror genre, specific text, but also just sort of the, like, remember when, you know, kids weren't promiscuous? Like, there's always sort of that sort of dialogue. And what's interesting is there's a scholar named Svetlana Boim who talks about this this difference between un the uncanny and nostalgia, which I think is 100% at work in this film. And she says, at first glance, it appears that the uncanny is a fear of the familiar, whereas nostalgia is a longing for it. Yet, for a nostalgic, the lost home and the home abroad often appear haunted. And I think, you know, if we think of the campus in this film as being a home, which, which you mentioned mm -hmm. um, is something that caught your attention, this liminal space, yeah. it's very much a, a narrative that's haunted, right, by versions of the past that don't really exist. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Speaking of the past, this is a film that actually has a rather intriguing history or past itself, because it took a while for it to get made. Yeah, so... Happy Death Day, as it finally came out, was not as it was originally conceived. It took 10 years to make. The original draft of the screenplay was actually written in 2007 by Scott uh, Lobdell, who, uh, he is the screenplay writer on the finished product, but this original draft didn't exactly look the same. I mean, even down to the title. It was originally called Half to Death, Mm. which uh, I think they uh, made the right choice, changing the title to Happy yes. Death Day, a lot punchier. Uh, the screenplay, 2007, uh, was announced with Megan Fox to star and Michael Bay to produce, a very 2007 pair. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I think maybe maybe Megan Fox could have pulled it off. She did a fine engine for his body. But it would have been a decidedly different film as a Michael Bay production. Oh, certainly. Uh, and the studios agreed that the screenplay then needed some work, so they brought in Christopher Landon, who would later go on to direct Happy Death Day, to rewrite the script. Uh, but the studio then decided not to move forward with the film. Uh, Landon says of his experience, the movie was in pre-production or soft production at the time, and I came on and loved the concept of the film. He loved the concept of the movie, loved the idea of a girl trapped in a time loop where she had to solve her own murder. I was in an interview with Insider. And part of the changes that Landon made to the screenplay then was adding in the romantic element in order to humanize Tree a bit more. Which, you know, I don't know if it was necessary, you know, whether or not it humanized her... I don't know. It's obviously a cliche, right, to have that element. But I think that it works if we're thinking of this as being a nostalgic reference back to the 80s, you know, teen film. Yeah, which it clearly references. I mean, 16 Candles. Yeah, so there's that, that shot, right, where they're eating the cupcake and they're both seated that it just, I mean, it is as right close to... Right by the window. To, yes. It's close as to close 16 to Candles as, as possible. possible. Mm -hmm. 
And so for a while, it looked like uh, this film was just never going to see the light of day. But years later, Landon was having lunch with one of the OG producers of the film who asked Landon, whatever happened to that Mm. film? I know you loved it. I know I loved it. It was a really cool idea, which led Landon to actually being inspired to pitch this idea to producer Jason Blum of Blumhouse Productions, who had been asking Landon to collaborate with him. And Blum said uh, in an interview with Insider about the film that he thought it was an interesting idea and wanted to see it. Thought it was a compelling idea. Never occurred to me before. It sounded original. And when something sounds original and it's compelling, we say yes. And you know, Blumhouse is good about taking risks. You know, well, they, for sure. they have no problem saying, ha, huh, that's different. Okay, sure. I mean, without Blumhouse, we would have no Get Out. So. Right, exactly. But, you know, for every Get Out, for every Habitate, there are other films that, that you know, just kind of, not every film is, is the golden ticket. Um, so I feel very fortunate that we got the version of Happy Death Day that we did. Indeed. And that version that we got was released on October 13th, 2007. Uh, 2017, excuse me. And the film received... Okay, reactions. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes scores a 71%. Metacritic scores of 58. Which, you know, is about right for just the average horror film. Yeah. They didn't absolutely hate it, but it certainly wasn't super high up. Right. Audiences were a bit more in line. They Their Rotten Tomatoes score was a 66%. Metacritic was 6.8 and gave it a cinema score of a B. But, not bad. Yeah, not bad at all. Uh, but the box office, on the other hand, was pretty good for a film on a $4.8 million budget. It made globally $125.5 million. So definitely made back its money there and garnered a sequel, Happy Death Day to You, that was released February 13th, 2019. So one of the reasons why... Anthony and I thought it would be fun to talk about Happy Death Day is that obviously there's people who like it, right? We're not talking about a film that no one's ever heard of before. Yeah. But I think it's a film that deserves a little bit more critical attention, right? Like, it's not just a fun film. It's a film that actually is really smart and clever. Mm -hmm. It does some very, very interesting stuff, but all it seems to be reduced to is, oh, yeah, it's the horror Groundhog's Day. Right. Which... The film admits it is, too, but again, I just think that there's more to it that is worth looking at, which is what we're going to do in the next little while. Before we start talking about all the things that Happy Death Day does right, it's worth discussing something that actually I'm not sure I really was thinking about the first time I watched it, but upon further reflection, I realized that there is one aspect of this film that I find a little troubling. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're not just going to gush about this film for 30-ish minutes. We... Do, we are looking at this film critically, and its handling of the final girl trope is, well, it less than sticks the landing. The final girl term was coined by Carol J. Clover in a 1987 article, Her Body Himself, Gender in the Slasher Film. And it we've reduced it down to just this phrase to refer to whomever just happens to be alive at the end. Mm -hmm. For Clover, it was more complicated. It was about looking at why is it that men who seem to be, at least in the slasher films, um, the primary audience, how is it that they're willing to watch a film where the main protagonist and the one who survives is a woman? And so she talks about, if you look at like Halloween or if you look at any of the... Friday the 13th. Exactly. That they're not 
as feminine as some of their friends are, the character that they are um, very pure and, and things like that. And so on the surface, Tree and Happy Death Day seems to be this radically beautiful departure, right? She's very feminine. We see her quote, naked. We see her in just a bra. We see her in pretty feminine dresses. She has long hair. She's she's a pretty actress. And she's not likable. Uh, yeah, and so this has led to many people praising Happy Death Day for subverting this final girl troop and being a very modern example of it. John Squire of Bloody Disgusting actually says that Tree is the perfect example of a modern final girl because while many films take a surface-level approach to the strong female characters, Happy Death Day presents a heroine who is wonderfully and completely realized, and says that this may very well be the first ever slasher franchise with a final girl character as the main selling point. Character who evolves, a character who becomes a better person right before our eyes. Uh, so I, I agree with some of that, right? Like, I agree that she is the type of character that we're going to respond best to now. Where I begin to have a problem is is that that part about, you know, that we see her grow. So, mm-hmm. yes, we see her grow, but by the end of the film, I would argue that she's kind of transformed into that more conservative model of the final girl. Mm-hmm. Very much. It's very much reinforcing the narrative that only the good girls deserve to live. And that's kind of something that was present even in uh, the screenwriter's mind when writing this film because one of the things that Scott wanted to do was uh, take the horror movie and slasher movie tropes and turn them upside down. Every slasher film opens with the mean girl getting killed and the good girl living till the end. And I thought, how can we make the mean girl and the good girl the same person? That was an interview with Thrillist with uh, Scott Lubdell. Yeah, again, I I really admire this challenge that he's presented himself with. And I think that there's something great about this idea that you don't have to survive solely if you're the, quote, perfect model. Um, And I know, like, some critics have talked about how in Stranger Things, they end up saying, well, you can die just as easily if you're the good girl, right, Um, as not. But but I think that, that where this film becomes a little problematic for me is that it's one thing to say that she becomes nicer, that she becomes more empathetic, but she also becomes less unruly, right? She becomes sort of tamed. I almost think of like taming of the shrew. Exactly. She settles down with this uh, run-of-the-mill, nerdy, nice-ish guy, Carter, and is just kind of stripped of all of that selfish, loud, big personality that she starts the film with. And even her you know, sort of like sexual presence as the, as it progresses, right? So we see her first in that, that top that she's was apparently wearing the night before when she was partying. We see her in a bra, we see her naked, but then we see her as the film progresses a lot more in his shirt. Um, and so, you know, it, there's just fully covered yes. long sleeve shirt. So everything is covered. Yes. Lots of horror films end up being conservative at the end of the day in terms of sort of reaffirming the status quo. And just to be clear, When you use the word conservative, you're not using it in the typical way that conservative gets used in meaning politically conservative or politically liberal, but rather conservative in the sense that it's not seeking to change anything, but rather just reaffirming the status quo and the way things have always been rather than seeking to change something. Absolutely. 
And I think it's an important distinction to make because this film manages to push a lot of boundaries, but at the end of the day, it's the good version of of Tree that lives. Right. And I mean, even the more some of the more conservative uh, messages are seen throughout the film. I mean, it with the her love falling in love with Carter for him doing the absolute bare minimum it seems. Yeah, for making sure that you know she didn't choke and then not taking advantage yeah. of her. Congratulations. You did not rape her. I'm going to fall in love with you now. Right. Um and you know and admittedly at one point he does die for her. So at least you know he he does something kind of profound. But but they're just and you know there's other lines um my mom would have been disappointed in who I've become or mm-hmm. I'm not a good person and then Carter's like uh, it's never too late to change. You can always be better. So you know that that would probably be my one sort of major criticism of this film is that I think we have to be careful in recognizing that something can be superficially very forward and can be pushing boundaries while still giving us something that might at the end of the day be, if not entirely conservative, perhaps not as progressive or profound as we think it is. But even with that, right, I still find this film to be absolutely delightful. Oh yeah, Uh, it's a good time uh, from start to finish. I think that the opening gag with the universal theme and logo repeating itself three times just proves that this is a very smart film and it knows what it's doing. Yes. And if we go back to nostalgia, right? Like that sound, right? That opening sound is one that we're like, yay, the movie's going to start. And we know it by, so by heart. You start humming it. Exactly. And like, we're ready to get started. And then it starts over. And you're like, oh, that's a little off. And right. then it starts over again and you realize what's happening. Yes. And, and it just... It does that kind of throughout. It's very aware of like, okay, well, what are the moments we can take advantage of that maybe someone else isn't thinking to do? And so that, you know, that opening little bit is is a good example. And there are lots of other things that are quite admirable. I think about just any any film or show that has Bear McCreary doing the music for is I'm willing to watch. Yeah, it's an excellent score. It's the perfect combination of comedic sounds and undertones mixed with the more traditional horror movie type uh, dark and minor key type stuff. Yeah, he knows he knows when to give us the beat that we need so that it accompanies it. Um, he manages, there's, you know, some of it's modern music, right? Like actual, um, you know, songs by bands and stuff. Some of it's just stuff of his own creation, but it just, it works. Also, surprisingly, considering that this was a film that didn't have to go this route, has some really sharp cinematography. It really does. I'm the one sequence that sticks out for me in particular is the scene in which uh, Tree is killed by Babyface with the baseball bat, and you see her get hit in the head uh, by the baseball bat, and you follow her head as she slowly transitions down perfectly into uh, the beginning of the time loop on. Carter's bed again. Yeah, this is a film that's gonna need transitions, right? Um, and Fade to Black is gonna work perfectly fine 90% of the time. Mm-hmm. But that one moment, right, it's, you know, so that is what? Death number seven. Yep. So death number seven out of 11 lives, because um, that last time she survives. But but this is at the halfway mark. So we kind of have this like, okay, sometimes things are a little different feeling. Um, there's also some really nice subjective POV shots, especially when she's, you know, realized finally that 
this is happening. And so we're kind of subjected to that same, like, disorienting feeling. Yeah, on death number four, uh, or day number four, uh, when you see her walk of shame. Which is what the DVD credits list that sequence in which Tree is walking out of Carter's dorm. You see things more through her eyes and things are sometimes slanted and you can't quite hear it because of the sound mixing things are certain words are popping out but not everything and and this is a film that's really tightly edited very tight so it has a runtime of you said 96 minutes 96 minutes which in today's era where that is not as common um, again, it's it's actually like another sort of nostalgic moment of remember when films were just really tight. We watched uh, some of the deleted scenes that are available on the DVD, Blu-ray, mm-hmm. and you know, total, it was only about 10 minutes that would have been added possibly, but it, it was just 10 minutes that they said, no, we don't really actually need this. And uh, after seeing the scenes, they were right. They were perfectly adequate scenes. They, I don't think they would have negatively affected the film in any way, but just having the restraint to be like, yes, we have these scenes shot, but we don't need them. I think, I like what you just said, because I think that might be one of the things that works the most for me in this film is, is that this, considering that this is a film about a girl chased by a baby-faced killer mm-hmm. um, living every day over and over again, it's a rather restrained film. Oh, it is. Uh, it doesn't, and I mean, part of that is the restraint of the studio. It's a PG-13 film. And so it, you're never going to get the same freedom that you might in an R-rated film. So that has a little bit of built-in restraint right there. Absolutely. And there was a discussion by um, some of the people involved in the production that they purposely didn't want to show the deaths because they felt like it was actually that moment right before the final moment of death that actually allowed for the time loop to happen. Mm -hmm. So some of it is it fit within the sort of cosmos, but some of it is is sometimes you can have a lot of deaths and not need to have it be super bloody. Yeah. And still have it be perfectly horrific. And and very effective, I think. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, And speaking on just the tight nature of this film, that opening sequence is 14 minutes and 12 seconds long, and that's before you get to that first death. Uh, and it's everything in that first 14 minutes is important, needed, and you did, there's not a lot of superficial things. Like, And it's everything from the very obvious, like that opening walk that she will use to later justify that everything is happening the same, mm-hmm. to the less obvious, like her seeing the guard uh, guarding the uh, mentally unstable individual yes. at the hospital. Yes. And it could have been longer, right? Like, the thing that I, I like is that if we were to actually, if any, either of us were to actually experience our own real version of Groundhog Day, I think it would take us a while, right? Like, because, yeah. you know, like, nobody's first thought is going to be like, oh, I bet I'm living in a time loop. No, it's, it's very similar to hers, most likely, in that, oh, deja vu. Really exactly. intense deja vu. Exactly. But we, the audience, we're very, very familiar with this trope. So we don't need much time. Right. right? We don't need for her to have, like, some huge, long, angsty moment. And I think it's even the filmmakers know that we don't need as much time as the character because we only see uh, 10 deaths and 10 trial, but the character, Tree, mentions that she's died 16 times. So that is several deaths that we do not see and things that we don't see, but... I don't feel cheated out of those deaths. I don't exactly. feel like, oh, 
I really needed to see her die those extra couple of times just so I could understand that it's a time loop. Exactly. And of course, by the time we get to Happy Death Day 2, we do have some of that, right? We have an actual, like, entire montage of her just dying all of these ridiculous ways. But by that point, we, the audience, and her, the character, are ready for that. Yeah. Um, but you're very right. The other way I think this film manages to be very restrained is in terms of, you were t- you mentioned this idea of the liminal space that's being mm-hmm. created by setting this all at a university that looks an awful lot like most universities, but also looks, you know, like no specific university. It's everything but nothing exactly. at the same time. It's that perfect closed liminal space. And anyone who has been to uh, a college w- is could believably put their own experience onto this campus. And you could see why this character might believe that everything is happening over and over again for the first couple of times, because it college campuses are a very closed space. They're by design. They want you to stay on this one campus and stay in this bubble. And so it's believable that for the first couple of times she'd wake up and just be able to write it off as deja vu because of the fostering of liminal space and just closed nature of universities. Yeah, you see everyone every day. But not only that, you see everyone every day at the very same exact specific time. And very similar spots. Yes. Everyone has their own corner, little pocket. Even people who you don't know, which is something that gets used to great effect. Uh, It's just the bystanders that Tree sees become very, very important for her identifying where she is and what exactly is going on at specific times and moments. Yes, and so this concept of deja vu works beautifully on a, on a university campus. Um, this idea, But it also works well with nostalgia, right? Because there is this idea that, like, ah, oh, remember when, you know, we were young and we didn't have consequences, right? I think this film is really targeted for, like, that 25-year-old, 30-year-old demographic, right, who are like, ah, oh, the good old college days, right? And so there is this feeling that, like, yeah, it was repetitive, but remember how nice it was that it was repetitive? And so it's kind of poking fun at that. But was it? Because weren't you kind of miserable when you were going through it and you felt like every day you were dying a little bit more until you got your degree? And every day was the same thing over and over and over exactly. again. Another extremely obvious way that this movie plays tribute to nostalgia is its premise. Yes. We've seen this before. Exactly. And so um, to go back to, to Svetlana Boym, she has this other quote that she says, one form of nostalgia is to see everywhere the imperfect mere images of home and to try to cohabit that with doubles and ghosts. So this is a film that is using that imperfect mirror formula, right? This is something we've seen before. We're familiar with the Groundhog Day premise mm-hmm. uh, and we've seen it other places. And, and the film is like, yeah, we've got you. We know you've been there, done that. Mm -hmm. The screenwriter uh, said in the Thrillist interview that every movie is essentially a combination of this movie and that movie and whatever. For me, it's always, can this movie stand on its own? Even though it's the horror version of Groundhog's Day, is it still our own thing? And this led to the production team not watching uh, Groundhog's Day during the production process uh, because they acknowledged that they were dealing with younger viewership that ha- maybe had not watched Groundhog's Day and doesn't really know the ins and out of the time loop movies. So that allowed them to really just make their own movie, mm-hmm. even though there are elements of it, clearly, that are reminiscent back to these other things. 
And and then of course there's there's references to things beyond Groundhog Groundhog Day, right? Mm-hmm. The one that I think of is um, some of that camera work in the bell tower scene when she's about to hang herself because she knows that she has to restart the day so Carter will live. Mm-hmm. It's not spot on exact, and I don't think it needs to be, but it's a little hard as a film person to not think of Vertigo, right? Hitchcock's Vertigo, and where we have a very similar sort of premise of a female going up the stairs, a man chasing her, and then, you know, something happens, and then we realize it's more complicated than that. One Another very clear influence that's very hard to ignore is Back to the Future, the, the one sequence in which Tree is being hunted by Babyface and the cars, they, the fire light with the gasoline is extremely reminiscent of the Back to the Future tire fire car thing that happens up to the tower. And, and yet, right, and bec- yet because in that instance, right, it's a birthday candle that lights the fire, mm-hmm. um, and we know that she's going to die at the end um, in the bell tower because we know it's not going to become some convoluted mystery after this. Um, it's a film that just says, yeah, I can acknowledge this, but I can also be my own thing. Yeah, we have influences. Everybody does. It's impossible to just come in with no baggage and having seen nothing because filmmakers who and screenplay writers who clearly do love the, these things that they're making it off of, but they're also still doing their own thing. But if we go back to the idea of restraint, right, because I just think that was a perfect way to think about the, the benefits and the greatness of this film, it also manages to not be just riddled with pop culture references left and right. Mm-hmm. It's so easy, especially in comedy horrors, especially in things that are parodies, to just really date yourself by having references to whoever's in the news right now. Yeah. Um, All those scary movie parody things that are just impossible to watch like two or three years later because you don't get the jokes anymore because they've immediately dated themselves, like you're saying. Happy Death Day just has a poster here. Yes. Uh, A similar screen image there and then in the final conversation where uh, Carter and Tree are actually talking about Groundhog's Day but it's just a fleeting moment right at the very end of the film a kind of winking nod rather than a oh if you haven't seen this film you're not going to understand anything that's been going on right because not even Tree has seen it and so it becomes something that like if you know it great that's another sort of winking moment but if you don't okay you can appreciate this film for what it is by itself final thing that this film does that we both just really enjoy and have seemed to in other films gravitate towards is the blending of comedy and horror. I don't know what it is. I mean, I I do, but like there's just something about comedy horror films, good comedy horror films that make me so incredibly happy in a way that they just don't when they're strictly comedy or strictly horror. It's a different feeling. They're not the same thing. No, they're, they're really, you know, we talk about comedy horror as like a subgenre, but in, in, its, in many respects, it kind of almost deserves at this point, I think, to get its own designation because it's, it's saying, here are good things about comedy and, and problematic things, here are good things and problematic things about horror. I'm going to find a way to fuse them together in new ways. And I mean, the experience of fear and the experience of laughter are two very similar Responses. They're both very big. Yes. They're both deep within you. They bring up often things that you don't necessarily want to think about. Comedy brings up, presents things that you don't want to think about, but in a comedic manner. And horror brings up things you don't want to think of, think about in a horrific 
manner. So it just makes sense that you would be able to perfectly blend these two things together and have a very rich and fulfilling genre of film. And genre studies, you know, scholars that, that are in genre studies talk all the time about the fact that there are three what they call body genres, and it's comedy, horror, and actually pornography, right? And they say that, you know, all of these, if we sort of articulate what is the, the response that's happening, it's visceral, um, mm -hmm. be that laughter, screams, or other. Uh, and so it makes sense to have these films together. But the problem is, right, and I think where a lot of people struggle with horror comedy is that it is hard to do good comedy. It is hard to do good horror. It is almost... And I imagine it's hard to do good pornography as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't know, but I would imagine. <laughs> but it is almost impossible to do good comedy horror because you are faced with all of these additional challenges. When do you go funny? When do you go serious? When do you try to create fear? And can you create fear if you haven't been building towards it for the last 50, 60 minutes? And I think Happy Death Day manages to to show that, yeah, you can have this underlying tension. Who is it? Is she going to make it? Is it going to happen? While also having these moments of levity. Happy Death Day is a film that never forgets that at its core, it's about something horrific, death and loss. And so because it never forgets that, even in the more lighthearted comedic, comedic moments, it still is building that underlying horror. Absolutely. Her mom is gone. No matter what. Right. And none of the moments of levity are about her mom. Never once is that a source of, of humor. Never is Tombs, the gentleman that's, um, you know, the killer uh, who had killed all those women previously, never once is he really a source of, of comedy. No. It's always other things that are happening, like the sequence in which Tree is texting Daniela while she is in the Pleasure Dome. Yeah, uh, so gross. At the frat house. So gross, so disgusting. So this is, this is uh, death number two. Yes, in which she is texting Daniela about this boy, and there's loud music pumping, and the boy that she is upstairs with is being killed to the music. Yes, and it's, you know, and so she's texting, she's looking into the camera, she's facing the camera's, POV and then the behind her we can just see him being you know killed and then when she turns around she doesn't even seem to notice the body right mm -hmm. not at first and then the sequence is capped off by her humorously being killed by a bong right so like that's just okay this death is going to be ridiculous and over the top from start to finish but then if we go back to the one um about the bat um that one is you know not only does she get hit by a bat to the head but before that she she mistakenly if not kills ser seriously injures uh an innocent bystander right mm -hmm. and so you know that one is not funny at all the hospital chasing until she gets arrested and she's like please take me to jail and he's like okay okay the, until that moment it's a traditional familiar slasher chasing she's got to get out of the out of the parking garage she's on the run she's escaped brief interlude of comedy and shenanigans with the police officer but then bam he's killed the police officer is hit by the car and baby face and we're right back into horror and you know she even says at one point that like this is a nightmare and she's kind of panicking and that moment of where we're experiencing that sort of subjective panic anxiety with her that creates that sense of if not horror then certainly tension right so it it manages to nicely find the beats and to acknowledge okay when is this gonna be 
something that we have to just acknowledge the over the topness of and when is this something that we need to say no um this is a moment that we should we should think twice it's not afraid to be to take those intimate moments yes and allow the characters room to breathe and this may sound ridiculous to be saying about a horror comedy movie like happy death day but it really does it allows tree especially i mean she's the main character to really have some intimate character moments particularly when she's talking about her mother uh, with Carter in the diner and when she has to confront her father ultimately at the restaurant yeah and even even Carter the the quickness with which the film implies that he believes her right um there's something that feels very real about that like how great would it be to have someone in your life that when you say you know by the way i've been reliving this day over and over again that they're like okay well then let's find out who's doing it um and so that, that's also a really nice and sort of surprising element for both a comedy and a horror film because usually both t- in both films part of the anxiety is no one's believing me but there's someone after me this film it's like okay well someone's after you let's figure out what to do next mm-hmm. and and even just think about the baby face mask right um on the one hand, it's about as goofy as it gets, especially with that one, like, tooth, right, mm-hmm. that protrudes. On the other hand, there's something uncanny about that face. Yeah. And because uncanny is something that the horror genre thrives off of, it manages to be something that it's hard to be creeped out by it, but it's also hard to not be creeped out by it. When you put that baby face in some low light and you get the shadows shining just right, no, it's creepy. I think we have said about everything that we want to say in this short of a podcast, although I I know we could probably talk about this film for a lot longer. There's just so many great moments. But I really think if I were to sum it up, it goes back to that idea that you said about restraint. Mm -hmm. This is a film that manages to be surprisingly restrained despite the ridiculousness of the premise, the deaths, what we see, um, the scares, right? Like, it just manages to say, but I know when to stop. Yep. And... Yep. <laughs> now, <laughs> oh, that's funny. Okay. I was about to just repeat what you said, yeah. and I was just like, no, no, no. you said it pretty well. Ah, uh, that's funny. <laughs> um, well, I think that's probably about where our discussion of Happy Death Day needs to end. The next film that we want to talk about a lot of people really feel strongly that this was a film that works, but mm-hmm. for us, we have some different opinions. Uh, to keep you from waiting in suspense, the film we're talking about is 2014's It Follows. Yes. Which, again, is one of those films that I, I hear even non-horror people like, oh, this is the one horror film I can I can handle. And so I hope that you'll join us for our next episode where we look into the things that we will admit It Follows does well. And then our discussion framed again in, in a critical framework of why we feel that at the end of the day, It Follows doesn't really work for us. So remember to share this podcast with all your friends, listen to it, like it all that jazz and then come back once we release our next episode to see what follows and it is it follows that is what will follow that was bad (laughs) but i like it thank you so much